In the 1950s, a science fiction television show ran on CBS titled The Twilight Zone. Does everybody know what I'm talking about, Twilight Zone? It's one of my favorite shows of all time. The premise was essentially this. A man or woman wake up and life around them is backwards. Nothing was the way they'd want it to be. Paradigms have shifted. Normal is now a thing of the past. And within this show, different people and individuals were introduced to an entirely new city, relationships, and way of life, that being described as the Twilight Zone. Now, if you were to sleep, and if one were to sleep and wake up in the middle of Acts chapter 5, they'd, they'd open the curtains, and they, they would breathe in what's taken place, and they'd see the apostles and this newly formed Jesus community. they see that's all that's been done and all that's being done. And then they'd hear the voice of Rod Serling. And he'd be holding a cigarette and he'd be welcoming them to the twilight zone. Now I say this, I say this because every Jewish authority, every member of the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees, and all of those on the, on the outside of the Christian faith, are witnessing their city and these lives around them backwards. A life completely alien to them. I mean, it's the biblical twilight zone. And these Jesus lives, these Jesus people, are unlike anything they'd ever seen before. Or dare I even say, even imagined before. Their rhythms, their rituals, representative of a new life in Jesus. See, for them, and I mean... It's really, nobody's ever experienced this for the first time. These lives, nobody's experienced this. Now, and I'm not necessarily, I want to make sure I say this, I'm not necessarily even talking in a negative way. We're to demonize the culture at that time. But these Christians saw all of life and lived a life anew. For them, it was as if life was given life. Even though they may attend the temple, they were now getting that they were temples of the Holy Spirit or sacrifice for sin and transgressions were now paid for in Jesus. It was the dawning of a countercultural Christianity, a countercultural way of life. It was the twilight zone to everybody who was watching this happen. And all of it starts, if you know this or not, all of it starts within the book of Acts. I hope you guys, I really do. We've been going through Acts very purposely, very deliberately. So I hope you guys are falling in love, if you've been around, with the book of Acts. Or falling in love all over again with the book of Acts. These very, very enthusiastic verses within these chapters. Please get, Acts is an epic, epic story for us today. For collective church. We have to get that it's not some cookbook on how to whip up a roasted garlic community. It's not some manual with blueprints of how to start a church. And it's for sure not a script in which, which we're supposed to, you know, command, see, copy, and paste for our situation. Acts is the beginning of our story. Acts is the beginning of collective church's story. We would have no collective church without the book of Acts. So again, we chose it very deliberately so that we may behold what's in front of us, what's happened before us, as the Spirit of God carved the very first church, and how they and how their story includes each and every one of us. Now, all of Scripture in its own redemptive ways does this, but especially, especially Acts, 
It's a story which you and I are invited in as participants. Christians, if you are here and you care about the church, Christians, if you are here and you care about the church, you will want to absorb, you will want to absorb all the movements and mysteries and moments of Acts. Because as we saw Christ rise from the dead last week, as we celebrated, everybody's pumped. As we saw Christ rise from the dead, then he assigned a job and a role and a mandate to all those who followed him. The very same job, role, and mandate applies to every believer in this room. It applies to every believer. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ and have been unaware that Christ has commissioned you, that you have been invited in as a participant to this grand story, then please pay close, close, close attention to these next few moments. See, God's mission, yours, our commission, has many facets, but essentially for the church, it's this. And I'm going to read some verses. Pay close attention, because these are epic. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. See, church, this is why we as a church, as a community, seek to live a life with non-transactional love. Why we focus so hard on neighborhoods, why Christ-likeness love is crucial in our efforts to make a difference. That mandate goes on. Another section of verses from Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is why you guys, this is why we are so nuts about seeking to assist church plants. Six other church plants, you guys right now, are helping financially and prayerfully. We're also, but there's a handful of us, we're meeting tonight after church, who are going to London for a prayer tour. We are seeking to make sure that the nations are baptized and discipled and heard of Jesus. And then Acts reminds us, and this will be the last verse, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. As these words were sent from Christ's very lips, Christ then sent from his very throne his spirit, as we saw in Acts 2. And it's only by his spirit that we'll actually be able to attain any of these mandates that we've been so wonderfully given that we've been so wonderfully included in on. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, this is to be done in community. In community. Not alone. These mandates are not to be done alone. Spirit-filled living, as we see for these guys in Acts, spirit-filled living results in a life of camaraderie, companionship, brotherhood, sisterhood, unlike the world had ever seen. Twilight Zone. So... These men and women living counter to everyday lives, counter to everyday ways of their culture. It was blowing their minds because you see where they not only shared beliefs, they shared everything else. And not in some like freaky commune way, but they shared their time, they shared their generosity, they had an entirely new attitude towards people and places and purposes and property. See, these descriptions of Acts 2 and Acts 4, if you remember, they should drive us. If you remember, they should inspire us as a newly formed community here on the West Side to be close, 
to be relying on one another, to count on one another, to commit to one another, to turn towards one another. And it's this very deliberate living in Acts chapter 5, this gospel compulsion lifestyle, this counter-conduct, excuse me, which has caused quite a stir, bringing us to Acts 5. It has caused quite a stir both with those who follow Jesus and those who don't. Again, if you've been with us for a while now in Acts, you know that everything is not leave it to beaver-esque. And it never is when Jesus is spoken of or lived for. See, between every chapter of Acts, it seems, between these beautiful glowing relationships and this beautiful movement, darkness still had a place. It's clear that within, every, within the early chirp, uh, chapters of Acts, that the Spirit of God is front and center, but in Acts chapters 3 to 6, Satan, the devil, sort of starts to take center stage. And so right now, in our journey through pilgrimage of, of Acts, as I just sort of rambled on, we are in the middle of violence, we are in the middle of corruption, and heavy, heavy distraction. See, before these verses, a little short while that we read and we studied, not too many weeks ago, the leaders of this church, Peter and John, had been put in prison and violently threatened. These group of men and women in this Jesus community, only a short while before, watched a man and woman have the life sucked out of them for lying to God himself because they were toxic to the church. All these things causing great pressure and impact on everybody who saw. Look down at verse 13. None of the rest dared join them. None of the rest dared join them, but they held the people, excuse me, but the people held them in high esteem. Essentially, they're freaked out. They're freaked out by the apostles. They're freaked out by what's going on. And wouldn't you be? I mean, if you didn't understand how these people just radically died, that your leaders are being thrown in prison, wouldn't you as well be freaked out? Wouldn't you you as well to see Peter calling down death, basically? It's insane. You remember that scene in Monsters Incorporated where little Boo saw Sully at the end of the movie scream for the first time? Remember the movie up to that point was all cuddles and coloring pages with Boo and Sully? And then she sees him scream, and then she looks at him different. Remember that scene? I think this could be some of the fear here as the apostles are being seen differently for the first time. Nobody wants to cuddle with Peter anymore. But then look at this. Look at this. Because then on the other hand, but on the other hand, so people were freaked out, but then on the other hand, people were drawn to this activity. Look at verse 14. And more than ever, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And women. See, like a bag of Trader Joe's trail mix, there's a mixed emotions everywhere and mixed feelings about what's going on for the whole lot. See, if we're familiar with the God of the Christian faith, if we're familiar, none of this surprises us. None of it. This is what the presence of God does. This is what the activity of God does. This is what the interruption of God does. It frightens some And to others it calls to faith. For some it frightens, and others it calls to faith. Look at verse 12. 
Now many signs and wonders, that being miracles, were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now I just want to go over this. Now know this about Solomon's portico, the temple. It's huge. It's big. Don't think of it as like a single lone building or like a cathedral or a Chick-fil-A with a parking lot. This place was massive. Massive. I mean, it, had, it was covering a portion of the city. Tons of acres and walled-off portions and gates and porches. So the apostles are doing their thing in the temple zip code, basically. Jump down to verse 15. Then they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as if Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. If, you, if this is your first time at a church, or you're not a follower of Jesus, or you don't believe in the Bible, and the thought of miracles just sort of upsets the equilibrium, know this, it does the very same thing for the majority of Christians. These miracles... These signs and wonders, much like the twilight zone, are not the norm of every day. If they were, they wouldn't be called a miracle. So just how the Christian life is to be countercultural to character and actions, so are miracles counter to the laws of nature. We spent a very long, full talk, message, sermon thing uh, a while back, really cracking open the egg of miracles, but it's healthy to be reminded now of some of the hard truths regarding miracles, regarding signs and wonders. Essentially, miracles are this. It's God providentially interrupting human affairs. It's God sovereignly interrupting the natural. It's God sovereignly interrupting time and space. And that's exactly what we have here tonight. We are beholding God interrupt not only nature and disease and unclean spirits, but also the mode of life for those who don't know, that, know him and those who do. For one, uh, for one of the purposes of signs and wonders, biblical signs and wonders and miracles, to know and understand them, you have to get, we have to get that they are not self-serving. Basically, miracles are never about Miracles. What we're reading tonight in Acts chapter 5, it's not about miracles. Just in the same way that music isn't about an instrument. In the same way that a theater is not about a stage. Or in the same way a church gathering is not about a preacher. Any and all miracles are an exception to the natural order of things for the purpose of revealing a God that is here. A God that is here. Miracles authenticate the message and the one who sent the messengers. Miracles affirm the apostles and their endeavors. Just as we've seen here with the apostle Peter. This is so crazy. His apostleship, his reputation, his leadership is clearly, clearly respected. So much so that they thought his shadow will do. Peter's shadow will do. It's all I need. Peter panning it. Like all the way, all they need is Peter's shadow. Now let's make sure we get this. Let's make sure we get this. The scripture doesn't say his shadow actually healed anybody. It doesn't say that's what happened. That's not what happened. 
But hear me out. Within the Greco-Roman world, shadows are seen as extensions of that individual. So there are some superstitions here that are at play as well. Nonetheless, whether it was happening or not, we've seen the desperation of really hurting people with massive faith before. If you guys are familiar with the accounts of the Bible, you'll be reminded by the healing of the woman grabbing the hem of Christ's garment. Or maybe if you're familiar with the Bible or the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19, which we'll get to in about five years, <laughs> Peter's, or Paul's handkerchief is doing some business. And it's worth noting, it's worth noting, I'd be wrong to try and skip over it, that these signs and wonders were done regularly. This whole time, Casey's been ringing the bell that they're not the norm. And here we have the word that they, you know, regular. So let me first go over this. That's not saying that anybody without apostleship can't be a vessel and an instrument for such displays uh, and, and actions. But I believe many get frustrated that with the idea of miracles that they're, that they're so prevalent with the apostles and not nowadays. I want to do miracles. Where are miracles now? Where are miracles in collective church? First, if I, let me just say this. If that is you, those desiring to perform miracles for their own agenda is an exact contradiction of the purpose of miracles as they are events proclaiming his presence and his glory. And second, they were apostles. They were apostles. Apostles means one who was sent out. They were a handful of individuals, these apostles, who are seen throughout the New Testament who were sent out and chosen for a very unique and specific purpose. For instance, there is no apostles here today. There's nobody in this room who's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, It died out with them, as they are the founders of the church. I want to read you this verse, uh, verses from Ephesians, another letter in the Bible. It says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of of the apostles. So they are founders of the early church and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. I really, really, really want us to get this apostleship thing as a church. It is a huge part of the book of Acts and really, again, the whole New Testament. But to make it super, 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 super simple and hopefully unforgettable, this week I've broken it down to the ABCs of apostleship. Everything's broken down to ABCs for me, so I hope you dig it. So if anybody wants to understand apostles, their qualifications, and their uniqueness, jot these bad boys down. It simply comes down to this. A, they have the ability, ability, A, ability. You get what I'm saying? A, B, C, you guys got me. They have the ability to perform regularly signs and wonders. Acts 2.43, 2 Corinthians 12.12. I'm not going to read them. You can go over them on your own time. B, 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 they have been with the risen, risen, risen Christ. They have been with the risen Christ. You got me, Taylor? Oh, good. They have been with the risen Christ. It's not enough to hang out with Jesus before the empty tomb. And C, they were explicitly chosen. Oh, by the way, been with the risen Christ, 1 Corinthians 9.1. C, they were regularly chosen by the Holy Spirit. 
excuse me, explicitly chosen, and that's Acts 9.15. Acts 9.15. And it was these qualifications, hear me out, it was these qualifications, these events, this way of life, this fruit, this response from the people around them that boiled the blood of the Jewish authorities. Look at verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with them, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy. Filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. You see, where the apostles and the Christian community are filled with the spirit, the Sadducees are filled with peanut butter and jealousy. Like they are filled with jealousy. Some of you latecomers, you can go ahead and laugh at the peanut butter jelly joke. The Sadducees, the Sadducees Sadducees were the religious, wealthy peacekeepers of the time. And everything that was happening right before their eyes was not supposed to happen to some farmers and to some fishermen, but to them. They're watching all of this happen, and their minds are being blown, going, no, 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 this cannot happen to farmers and fishermen, to tax collectors, to all of these people. Everything that's going on here needs to happen to us. Their shadows should be sought after. Their reputation should be fireworking in the sky. They're the ones who should have thousands of followers on Instagram. They're the ones that are the spirituals. They're the real deal. Where is their time in the sun? And it's these types of hearts of stone which make them ripe for jealousy. And this is a moment, I, and a word, I believe we should all just slow down and taste. Anybody's mom or dad ever tell them to stop chewing so fast, taste your food? Good, it's just me. That makes me uncomfortable. But anyway, we want to slow down. I want to slow down so that we could taste this little portion tonight. We must see that jealousy... I want to talk about jealousy. Jealousy is uh, tremendously, tremendously wicked. And this is true for those who are Christian and not Christian. See, where a lot of our vices can maybe be enjoyed, lust or greed, jealousy is very, very different. Jealousy is a venomous bite to the heart that we hate. Everybody here hates the feeling of jealousy. I don't know one person be like, I'd love to be jealous. This is one of the archetypes I'd like just to soak in tonight. See, we've titled, titled our pilgrimage to the book of Acts archetypes because at times when roaming through narratives of the Bible, uh, certain texts only apply to people in their context. So each week we hunt down the symbol that crosses generation and gender and race and find that truth that archetype. And today I want to go over jealousy as being one of them. See, the sting, archetype is the sting, excuse me, jealousy is the archetypal sting that each one of us have felt or currently feeling or will feel. So what's so unique about it is we don't have to be jealous, uh, we don't, excuse me, how do I say it? Uh, is we don't know we're jealous of something until it's too late. We do not know we're jealous of something until it's too late, like a great white shark attack. See, I didn't know I liked her until I saw her with him. I didn't know I liked him until he talked with her. I didn't know I wanted that role until I didn't know that mattered until. And see, I want us to get that it's more than envy. Jealousy is more than envy. Where envy whispers, I want that. Where envy says, I want. 
Jealousy, which is so crystal clear in our verses for tonight. Jealousy howls. I want what you have, and until I have it, you shouldn't have it either. I hope we're starting to see how evil jealousy is and the damage it can do to our lives and lives around us. See, it's an urge to not only steal and have what somebody else has, but it's a mindset to then control their good. It's a mindset that they're, you, you're undeserving of this. Now, I'm not talking about the good side of jealousy, like spousal jealousy. For the most part, everyone is familiar with the right side, you know, the righteous side of jealousy, like a spouse for a spouse. If my wife was flirting with with another man, I'd have a right to be jealous. That's righteous jealousy. Tonight, we're discussing the unrighteous side, the slimy side of jealousy, the side that will and has affected us all. The book of James in the Bible says this, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So in Acts chapter 5, we have these apostles casting out these demonic spirits. And those who are watching it are filled with this demonic jealousy. Friends, please, please, please see the wholeness of jealousy. Jealousy is a very different kind of sin. Sin being where we ourselves play God. And as gods, we think that we can save ourselves, change ourselves, control all, that we're righteous in and of ourselves. Sin is this lifestyle where we reject and bash the, and, and, and basically unneed the God who so loved this world that he gave his only son that whosoever perishes, whoever so believes in him, excuse me, will not perish but have everlasting life. This is our innate, our innate human nature to think of ourselves, to place ourselves as God of everything. And if that's true, And if sin is that, if that's true, then it makes sense that we will be greatly envious and greedy and hurtful and angry and bitter and frustrated and broken and jealous when things do not go our way. Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. When things can't be controlled. Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. Friends, is there anybody here tonight who is jealous of anything or of anyone right now? Do you have a jealous proclivity? Let's self-examine right now. Let's ask ourselves some questions in this room. I'm just going to ask them out loud and think in your own heart and mind. How often in a given day do I praise and celebrate another as opposed to criticize them? I am so guilty of this. I am so quick to critique everything. How often do I nitpick, critique, judge, and why? There's a couple more. These ones really get me. Do we find it easier to be empathetic with someone who is hurting as opposed to sharing truly in someone's good fortune? And lastly, why do I experience a secret delight upon hearing about the fall of someone and who's in a position I'd want? 
I've always uh, liked this imaginative Shakespeare quote from Othello on the torment of jealousy. He says, Oh, beware, my lord of jealousy. It is the greeny-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. Jealousy is a monster. It's a sin that unmasks the true motives of the heart. See, the Bible says, know this or not, that our hearts are deceitfully wicked and we need rescuing from them. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked and we need rescuing from them. And many people struggle to see this. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I make mac and cheese. How is my heart deceitfully wicked? I'm caring for children all day. I'm a student taking courses to change the world. How am I deceitfully wicked? I'm a pastor at a church. How am I deceitfully wicked? The Bible says our hearts, the capital of who we are, are like stone and a needing of a transplant to a heart of flesh. The Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, these Jewish officials executed Christ and are so jealous of these apostles' calling and abilities, so much so they hauled them off to public prison. Public prison. To shame them. So that the world out there will see them in prison, in chains, in darkness, in despair, to try to freak everybody out. That if you believe their words, and you live counterculturally like they're doing, and you talk of and you preach on Jesus, you too will be behind these bars. You see, it was jealousy more than upholding the law that drove these officials to seize them. And not just Peter and John like the incident of chapter 3 and 4 of Acts, but who did they arrest? Look at verse 18. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. They arrested all of them. All of them. An example of how mad jealousy drives everyone to the extremes. But again, if we were just to stop here and just think, oh, okay, they're in prison the rest of the days of their life, and just sort of everybody go home, I think this would be the most depressing story of all time. But verse 19 shows how, how wonderfully present God is. Look at verse 19. See, there's more. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors. An angel, Shawshank redemptionizes the apostles, and he kicks open the doors. Is anybody freaking out about this? Is this, is this amazing? Does this blow anybody's mind? Guys and gals, please do not think this is the normal. Like an angel walked down the prison cell hall, and Peter's like, finally! That's not what happened. An angel probably showed up, and all of them were like, oh, mama. Like they had no idea what was going on. They're probably losing their minds. There's an angel. So here's what we have. I want to talk about angels for a minute or two, if that's okay, before we end. I don't know about you, but I'm fascinated by angels. Is anybody else intrigued by them? Okay. Um, Angels will be showing up in the rest of Acts, so we'll be talking about them a bunch as we go through Acts here and there. But our verses for tonight have an angel in them. And actually, angels are found in more narrative portions of the Bible than anything else. 
There is a consistent portrayal of angelic existence and character and activity within the Bible's pages. If you want to go to the extremes, just as Karl Barth said, to deny angels is to deny God himself. He went on to say they provide the framework of mystery within the Old and New Testament of the Bible. Now hear me, they're not to be worshipped. They're not to be worshipped or even made a big deal of. They actually get quite upset in scriptures when they show up and somebody falls to their knees. You always pretty mostly see the angel go, bro, get up, get up, I'm not God, get up. They're very uncomfortable by it, and rightfully so. They are here to help the redeemed, sent by the Redeemer. Anybody realize that? Angels are not the redeemed. Jesus, God, when he came to this earth, he didn't become an angel. God became a human. It's amazing. If you know or remember, the majority of their role is to deliver a message. The role is to deliver, to, you know, the job is to deliver a message, a word of some sort. Think about it. Just within the Gospels, they announced Christ's birth, right? They announced Christ's resurrection, as we saw last week in Dazzling Apparel. God bless them. They announced Christ's ascension, and that is no different for our pals in prison. No different. Go and stand in the temple, the angel says, and speak to the people all the words of this Life. This wonderfully backwards counter, unlike anything anybody's ever seen, Twilight Zone life. Now, I wonder if their jaws drop not just at the sight of an angel, but at the message as well. Can we just put ourselves in their position in their shoes for one minute? It's not, go hit the showers, guys. Go down to the old spa. You guys deserve it. Take a load off, friends. No, it's go back to the place you got arrested. Go and speak of the things you got arrested for and do it now. (laughs) Go and speak of this life which is so backwards to the rest of the world. And no, it wasn't go and perform miracles. You guys ever get that? It wasn't go and perform miracles. Rock everybody's socks off. Go do some juggling. It was go and speak of how your life has been forever changed and the one who changed it. Go and speak how you are no longer slaves to your sin but saved from your sin. Go and speak that you no longer think you're God's but the one true God's beloved. Go and speak not of your jealous old ways but a life of gratitude. They're sent to go and speak of this prison thug life, which doesn't sound or look too glamorous, right? Go and tell everybody about your life. We're coming out of prison in. Like, go and tell everybody. But I think that's the point. I think that's the point, that even in the midst of such heavy tribulation and oppression and aggravation, they have something to sing about. Jesus gives them something to sing about. They have something to tell the world about. Something stronger and bigger than prison walls. The one who overcomes our oppressions and tribulations. Get this. Please get this. They're not persecuted because they're being obnoxious. They're not persecuted for starting some crazy cult. 
They're persecuted because they're being effective. Because they're effective. Collective church, isn't this what we want? Isn't that the most beautiful type of persecution you could possibly imagine? They're busted because they're being too much like Jesus. If I have to spend any amount of time in prison, God forbid, uh, I'd want it to be for that. So should you. Don't we want to be a part of something that is effective? Don't we want to be a part of something that is making a difference? And watching people's lives change and telling the truth and living out that truth. Living that twilight zone lifestyle which goes backwards to everything else out there that is telling us to do this and be this. Again, it's, it's, it's not only for the good of, of just redeeming culture, glorifying God. It's truly the good news to the world. See, I wonder if the Apostle Peter had these imprisonments in his mind when he wrote this in 1 Peter, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, but he says, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors, then even if they accuse you of wrongdoing, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give glory, excuse me, they will give honor to God. If we want this type of life, and Pastor Renzo and I have spoken with the majority of you, we know you do. Some of you move from different parts of the country to be a part of this. We know you want it. If we want this type of life, it will cost us something. It will cost us something. It'll probably never cost us what it cost the disciples and cost the apostles, but it will cost us something. The apostles knew it firsthand. The angels knew it very well. And our risen king, Jesus Christ, modeled it. Their level of investment for the apostles, for Jesus, for the good of their city, and aiding the household of faith cost them something. And we've seen that through the majority of acts that we've covered thus far. I just want to speak for a moment to the collective church community. You know who you are. And not in a weird shaming way. Please don't hear that. But really think about this. What is this costing you? This community, this lifestyle. What is this costing you? Are we financially invested? Are we invested with our time? Are we invested... And the mission and vision at, 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 the, at the classroom, in the office, with our kids? Are we invested with our heart? To desire something that will cost us nothing or take zero investment clashes immensely, immensely with the institution and commission of Christ's church. To be a part of his church both locally and universally is to be at odds with indifference is to be at odds with zero investment. It's to be at odds with zero cost. It's to be at odds with isolation. To be at odds with passivity. It's to be at odds with the ways of this world, just as Jesus was. Let's pray that right now for our church.